Please remain standing as you're able today as we read from the New Testament, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, but no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you a teacher of Israel? and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Be God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, grace and peace to each of you. It's so good to be in worship with you today. Uh, I told the other groups that I, I think this is the first uh, Sabbath, first Sunday in about six weeks where it hasn't been raining and cloudy. And it's wonderful to see the sunshine all over Bob and Nancy right over here. They're being transfigured among us. Uh, it's, it's great to be with all of you in person. And certainly those of you online, uh, we greet you in the name of Christ and what a privilege it is to share God's word with you today. Thank you, Brian, for reading. It is so good to have you with us, my friend. Uh, we are grateful to Brian Hicks, 16 years, I think, at Harvest Hands in community development. You may not know that Brian Hicks is the only confirmation dropout who actually made a minister. And so uh, he did drop out of confirmation and in spite of that, the Lord's used him in mighty ways. And Brian, it's great to have you back with us. Uh, we miss you. Uh, we support your work, and we're so grateful to you. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for leading us. And to our uh, chancel ensemble, we're grateful. Uh, you have now heard uh, the scripture read and sung. 
that is the word for us this day. Thank you to the bells as well uh, for beginning our service in such a beautiful way and to all of you. Well, we're continuing our series that we started last week. Last week was the first Sunday of our Lenten pilgrimage, 40 days, and we're calling this series Cross Culture. This is not a series, however, on diversity and our need to understand different people groups, although that is crucial. It's about our call to deny ourselves, to pick up a cross and follow Jesus. And that's essential. As I read the Gospel of John, I've noted that there are 11 different conversations in the fourth gospel between our Lord and others. Now, the discourse that Brian read for us is between Jesus and a very prominent religious elder. His name, Nicodemus, literally means in the Greek, victory of the people. What you need to know about Nicodemus is he is a member of the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish Supreme Court made up of 70 men. He is a Pharisee. And by the way, the term Pharisee literally means serious one. If ever there was a group that was serious about their religion, it was the Pharisees. It was a select group of 6,000 men, each of whom had taken an oath before three witnesses to devote every waking moment to keeping the Ten Commandments. The commandments, however, were given in such general terms in Exodus 20 that the Pharisees felt it necessary to define the small print. And so these serious ones spent their days applying the law to real life situations so that we might be more exact in our reverence to God. These applications, by the way, are noted in what's called the Mishnah, which is a rabbinical commentary on the law, and also in the Talmud, which is a commentary on the commentary. Incidentally, the Talmud, if you didn't know, the Talmud has 156 pages of bylaws related to keeping the Sabbath, 156. So I say all that, suffice it to say, Nicodemus's tribe was pretty scrupulous. They were meticulous about the law. Nicodemus was also an elite kind of leader who was accustomed to having people come to him for counsel, for spiritual guidance. But in this case, Nicodemus reaches out to somebody else. He reaches out to a Galilean rabbi, to Jesus. His coming to Jesus, I think, makes me wonder if Nicodemus might have been missing something in his life. Some of you may have come this morning, you feel like something is missing in my faith. Maybe Nicodemus had the habits of faith without the heart of faith. Maybe Nicodemus had the structure of religion without the spirit. Maybe he had routine and the patterns without the power. It reminds me a little bit of what Mr. Wesley wrote in his journal shortly before his death. This is what he wrote at the age of 83. I am not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist either in Europe or in America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect 
having the form of religion without the power. Now, I don't know about you, but that haunts me. And maybe, just maybe, that was Nicodemus. Something was missing, and I know the feeling. Maybe you know the feeling. John, who is a, a, a glutton for detail, remembers the time of Nic Nicodemus's coming. He says he came at night. And this is not a throwaway line. This is not a chronological statement. It's a spiritual observation. He came at night. If you know John's narrative, every single word in John's gospel has meaning. Day, night, light, darkness. It signifies two kingdoms or two realms, two perspectives, two worldviews. In the prologue in John 1, Jesus is personified as the light that shines in the darkness. In chapter 8, verse 12, one of the I am sayings of Jesus, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, for those of you who have children, small children, grandchildren, as do I, have I told you about my grandson? Uh, <laughs> as kids, we're often fearful of the dark. We're afraid of the dark. I, Sherry and I remember when our son was young that sometimes I'd come down the hall, his light would be off and I think asleep, but he had taken out a dinosaur or a mask and put it in the hallway or a scary book because he, get, he couldn't get comfortable in the dark. He couldn't find peace in the dark without removing some fearful object out of his vicinity. As kids, we're afraid of the dark. But I've noticed that when we grow up that more often we're afraid of the light and sometimes more afraid of the light than the dark. I love the name Fred Beekner, who died last August at age 96, Presbyterian author, theologian, who wrote a book called The Hungering Dark, in which he said, and I quote, there is a terror about darkness because we cannot see. But there's also a terror about light because we can see. There is a fear of light because of much of what we see in the light about ourselves and our world, we would actually rather not see. And sometimes we would prefer to live in denial than in reality. Nicodemus came at night, but at least he came. Some of you, some of us have come this morning in, in the darkness of, of some grief or some struggle. Well, at least we're here. Nicodemus came at night, I think, at great risk to himself, to his position and reputation, especially after that little episode in the second chapter of John where Jesus rearranged the temple. You remember that? Where he, he cleansed, the, he overturned the tables and so for one of the religious elite who's a part of the Sanhedrin, you can't be seen with Jesus. But he comes at night. And there's a hint of faith in his approach. Watch this. Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you're a teacher sent from God for nobody can do these signs that you do apart from the spirit or presence of God. Now I want you to notice on the screen, I've italicized two words. The first word is we, 
He's speaking in the plural pronoun. Apparently, Nicodemus is not simply speaking for himself, but he may be speaking for others in the Sanhedrin. We know. The other word italicized is the word signs. In John's gospel, a faith that is purely based on signs is a red flag. Now, you see this in the previous text, John 2, 23. Many believed in Jesus because of the signs he was doing, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. So a faith that is purely based on miracles or signs or what God can do for me is incomplete. Now, I may be wrong about this, but I think Nicodemus is an example of what Mr. Wesley would have called an almost Christian. He's curious, he's inquisitive, he's impressed by Jesus, he's even sympathetic with Jesus, but he's really more of a fan of Jesus than a follower. In other words, this religious elite man wants the inspiration of Jesus but he doesn't want the interference of Jesus in his life. He's an almost disciple, but he's not all in. And then what Jesus says next to him turns his world upside down. Truly I say unto you, Jesus says, nobody can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. What does that mean? The word in the Greek language is anathen. It can mean again, born again, or it can mean born above. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's confused. He's highly educated, but he's confused. He's a literalist, and so he responds by saying, how can an old person be born a second time? How can a person re-enter their mother's womb? And Jesus reiterates with one change. Truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom without being born of water, that's baptism, and the Spirit. And this absolutely blows Nick's mind. You mind if I call him Nick? In Nick's way of thinking, if you're born Jewish, you're already in the kingdom. But Jesus said, no, heritage is not enough. Tradition is not enough. Lineage is not enough. Ethnicity is not enough. One day someone asked a pastor, do you want to see my grandmother's prayer bench? And the pastor said, no, I want to see yours. It's not enough. You must be born from above. And then, to reiterate, to make his point, Jesus uses the wind as a metaphor for the Spirit. This is helpful. You, you can see it, but you don't know from whence it comes. You, you can't control it, but you can see its effects. Did anybody see the effects of the wind on Friday? Sherry and I spent most of yesterday afternoon trying to save a tree that the wind had captivated. And I have to tell you, these hands were made for preaching, <laughs> not for horticulture. You can see the effects of the wind. 
I've been reading and talking to friends recently about the revival in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury. Some of you have asked about it. One of my pastor friends, Eddie Willis, I married Eddie and his wife Allison in Jackson, Mississippi years ago. Eddie is the Wesley Foundation Director at Ole Miss University. He wrote me of his experience there a week or two ago. This is what he said. Upon arriving at Asbury, there was an air of anticipation and excitement. We got there about 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. There were long lines wrapped around the chapel, and I was blessed to join the prayer team, which exposed me to the work of the Spirit. I prayed with people from 10 different nations. I prayed with a young lady from Tokyo who was crying out to God because of the suicide rate in Japan. I prayed with a Brazilian family that was pleading for their children to be protected from evil. I prayed with a young man from Canada who was seeking spiritual direction in a difficult decision. The altar, he said, was filled with prayers of forgiveness, vision, healing, discernment, repentance. Each day and night was filled with testimonies given by students by young adults, followed by music and altar time, and it became more intense with people of all ages wanting to be prayed over. And then he said this, listen. There was nothing extra special about the way the worship was set. The front of the chancel had a piano, a guitar, a few microphones for singers. The full lights in the house were on. There was no smoke machine. There were not even lyrics on the screen. It was worship in its simplest form, and the only difference I could see was that the people came in expecting. End of quote. Let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say there was a great debate over theology. He didn't say there were many who were fussing over church polity. He didn't say they were splitting hairs over principles and issues. He said they were praising God. They were seeking the Spirit. They were expecting God. There was no great preacher. There was no celebrity band. Just worship in its simplest form for 17 days. Now, of course, there will be those and perhaps a few among us who would dismiss that as a bunch of overanxious young adults caught up in their emotions. But let me remind you, they said the same thing of the early Methodist movement. They called us enthusiasts, and they dismissed the Spirit. Let me remind you that they said the same thing of the disciples at Pentecost. They said they've been drinking, intoxicated, and I love Peter's response. He said, it's just nine in the morning, as if to say, but if you'll come back about five. <laughs> but I have to tell you, whatever they were drinking, I'll have what they're having. Whatever happened to them at Pentecost changed our world. Now, the good news is you don't have to get on the interstate and drive three hours north to experience the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is now. The Holy Spirit, the word is paraclete. It means one who comes alongside of us. 
The Holy Spirit is the risen presence of Jesus in the here and now. And the question is, are we seeking? What are we expecting of God? I've gotten to the point in my life where I don't just want the inspiration of the Spirit anymore. I want the interference of the Spirit. I want the intervention of the Spirit in us. Of course, the outcome is as important as the experience. What happens after the wind and fire is of importance. But the question is, what does the Spirit of God want of you and of me and of us? What does God want? of my business, of my home, of my relationships, of my witness. And I find myself praying more and more that I would be willing to allow Jesus to interfere, not just to inspire in ways that reconcile and restore and renew. Let me tell you something. We don't lead the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us. And sometimes theologians Clergy and religious types like me don't get it, and we need to be re-educated by our rabbi. You've got to seek him. I assure you, he's seeking you. Friends, we have some news that the world is desperate to see and hear. In fact, it's in our text. You know this verse well, and we're going to say it together. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know what my favorite word is in that verse? Whosoever. (laughs) That means you. Whosoever includes me. In fact, I was amazed to discover the other day when I found the Greek word for whosoever. You know what it literally means? Whosoever. (laughs) That's what it means. So however you label, however you define yourself, you made the cut. You're a part of the whosoevers. And God loves the family of whosoevers. There's a recent book came out just a few years ago by Janice Springer. The title is, I know we're all welcome at the table, but do I have to sit next to you? (laughs) I haven't read it, but I love the title. Think of the people that Jesus sat next to. Lepers, prodigals, prostitutes, Samaritans, sinners, tax collectors, Methodists, fishermen, the whosoevers. Nicodemus was doctor whosoever. But he didn't let his fear and pride keep him from coming to Jesus. By the way, if you didn't know, the last time that you see Nicodemus is in John chapter 19. There he is, taking Jesus down from the cross in broad daylight. He and Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a part of the Sanhedrin, would make the arrangements, and they brought 100 pounds of spices to embalm his body, an amount fit for a king. And turns out they didn't need it. 
But his presence on Good Friday is indicative of a man who went from almost to all in. He became a witness who tradition says he was eventually martyred because of his faith. But that encounter with Jesus changed that man's night into day. And he'll do the same for you. This morning, you're invited to a table where all are welcome. Don't mind the person beside you. We all have one thing in common. We're a part of the whosoever tribe. And when you get a taste of his mercy and love, darkness becomes light and night becomes day. And you may go from almost to all in to the glory of God. May it be so.